Gracious God, we thank you so much that you are the king who came once long ago and you are coming again. Jesus, you are the coming one. You've been faithful to your promises thus far and we know that you will be faithful to come again. And so as we're seeking to understand how to be ready, not just for ourselves, but for others' sake. Lord, please teach us, instruct us, and let the words that we read today be more than just ink on paper. We pray that we would hear a living word from the living God. We pray this not just for those of us who are gathered in this physical space, but also for our broader family who is gathered in our online space today, God. We pray that you administer to us the grace that we need right now. That the things that we read, it, that your Holy Spirit would translate to our hearts exactly what we need to hear. Thank you so much, Lord, for being that kind of God. Please make us ready. We pray in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. All right, so let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is the first book of the New Testament. Go ahead and find that. When you found it, go ahead and say, Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 25. We've looked at three parables thus far. I'm sorry, two parables thus far. And we're looking at the third one. You know, people call this the parable of the sheep and the goats. But in reality, the way Jesus is talking, he's not talking in metaphors anymore. He might be using the analogy within the story, but he's actually depicting what's going to happen at the end of time. So this is more of a prophecy of the sheep and the goats. All right, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. I'm reading from the New King James Version. What does this parable reveal about readiness? Verse 31, the Bible says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That doesn't quite sound like a parable, does it? This is just what's going to happen. Right? This is the king who is coming. And here's where I want to start. We're just going to kind of go phrase by phrase here. We're going to look at three pictures of the king that we see. And the first picture right off is a picture of certainty. It's a picture of certainty. What do we mean? Well, the, the verse doesn't start, if the Son of Man comes in his glory. Right? How does it start? When the Son of Man comes in his glory. I tell you what, friends, this is not something we should take for granted. Jesus is coming. Amen. Right? This is not a maybe or a might or I think he would. No, Jesus is coming. This is a picture of certainty. The certainty of Jesus coming is actually threaded throughout every one of the parables. The ten virgins, they're actually waiting and they're wondering, I'm sorry, they're not wondering if he's coming. They're just wondering when he's coming. They know the groom is coming. The wedding is for certain. In the parable of the talents, the, the servants who are entrusted with millions of dollars, they know the master is going to come back. Here, the same is told. When the Son of Man comes, the bridegroom does arrive. The man who traveled far, to a far country did, in fact, return. And in Jesus' mind, there is no question whether or not he will return. How is it with us today? 
You know, 2 Peter chapter 3 actually describes that there will be scoffers, there will be skeptics who kind of throw out the question, where is the promise of his coming? And the sad reality is that many order their lives in such a way as if to declare that Jesus' coming is mere wishful thinking. I mean, we, we may not hear that from others. We may not say that ourselves. We may not allow our minds to think that. But I wonder today, the way that we make decisions in life, does that reveal the certainty of Jesus coming? The way that we make priorities in life, does that reveal the certainty of Jesus coming? I tell you what, Jesus is. He is coming again. So that's the first picture right off the bat, when the Son of Man comes. The other picture is not just a picture of certainty, but also a picture of glory. All right, notice in, again in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And this may not be a big detail, but for Jesus' disciples who were listening and looking at Jesus in real time, he had just left the temple precincts. He had just uh, walked away from the religious elite, the religious leaders who were looking down on him. And, and you know, the disciples, they didn't see much of Jesus' quote-unquote glory. In fact, in chapters 26 and in 27, they're seeing Jesus struggling. They're seeing Jesus staggering in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. They're seeing Jesus tried as a criminal and crucified. Yeah, they're seeing Jesus lifted up, but they're seeing Jesus lifted up on an instrument of torture. But when Jesus comes, he's going to come in glory. Not just the glory of the cross, but the glory of the crown. Jesus is coming again, and this is a picture of a glorious king, right? He's sitting on the throne of his glory. There's a third picture here. It's not just a picture of certainty or a picture of glory, but also a picture of, of universality, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 32, it says this, all the nations will be gathered before him. How many nations? All of them. All peoples, all tongues, all tribes, all the nations, verse 32 says, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And we'll get into this picture of Jesus as the shepherd later on. But first, I just want us to notice that this picture of Jesus as the glorious king who is certainly coming, this is a picture of one who is king over all. All right? Jesus is king, not just of a people, but of all people. Jesus is king, not just of a nation, but of all nations. Whether he is acknowledged by all or not, Jesus is still king of all. Amen. Amen. And this should tell us something, yes, of the, the reach, the far reach of his authority and power. But even more than that, let me suggest this, that this tells us something of the largeness of God's heart. That when he is king, he is not just king to rule, but he is king to save. And he wants to save all nations. I love that this is in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you know the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing specifically for a Jewish audience, right? 
He was writing specifically so that his own kindred, his own people would recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, that's why you start in chapter one with this genealogy. <laughs> what kind of significance does a genealogy, we'll actually talk about that next week, but Matthew starts off with this genealogy that connects Jesus to the lineage of Abraham, connects Jesus to the lineage of King David. You know, he's writing to Jews to help them recognize that Jesus is the promised one they've been looking for. Now, what's really interesting here is that in this gospel that's specifically targeted to the Jewish nation, Matthew artfully weaves in this theme that Jesus is king, not just of the Jewish nation, but of all nations. It's powerful. It's really awesome that this uh, was meant to undo the narrow nationalism of the Jews in Jesus' day. This was meant to reverse the, uh, the elitist ethnocentrism, you could say, of Jesus' day. And how does he do this? Actually, in the immediate context, I mean, we see that, that, that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is invested in the salvation of all peoples, even those that seem to be forgotten and forsaken and cut off from God. And don't, don't, don't trick yourself into thinking that that kind of narrow-mindedness was just back then. There are times in our own Christian experience where we think that salvation isn't for others, it's just for us. Friends, don't trick yourself into thinking that Jesus is not king overall. He is invested in the salvation of all peoples. Amen. Amen. For nations, I mean, like you think about the Old Testament and uh, looking through the Old Testament prophets, you find people like the prophet Amos or the prophet Isaiah. Um, you know, they're, they're writing messages to Israel, yes. But oftentimes there are whole chapters dedicated, they're, they're oracles to other nations. They're oracles and messages for other nations. Why is that? It's because God is interested in their salvation too. Why is it that God would send dreams and visions to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar? the king of the empire that actually took his people captive. Why would he do that? It's because he's interested in the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar too. Think about Jonah being sent to Nineveh. Why would Jonah go to Nineveh? It's because that king that he serves wants the salvation of all. Yeah. You see, the king longs for the salvation of all like a shepherd who wants to lead all in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You actually see this heart, this large heart of God in the immediate context of Matthew 25 when uh, this phrase of all nations, you only find that in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and then again at the end of the book in Matthew chapter 28. The, Matthew weaves in this all nations theme. In Matthew chapter 24, just turn the page over to chapter 24 verse, I think it's verse 7. Verse 7, just notice how Matthew is describing the nations. In verse 7 of chapter 24, the Bible says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. In other words, this picture of the nations, it's one of, of groups in turmoil, right? Groups going at it. Groups struggling with one another. And then later on in verse 9, it's, it's not just that they're struggling with one another. They're actually taking it out on God's people. Look at this, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by who? By all nations for my name's sake. 
So it's not that they're just experiencing trouble within themselves. They're creating trouble for God's people. But praise the Lord in verse 14, same chapter, chapter 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to whom? To all the nations. You see what's going on here? Matthew's picture of God's heart as he views the nations. Yeah, they're struggling. They're going to create struggles for you. But you know what? The gospel is going to go to them. Why? Because I want to save them. <laughs> that's our king. He wants the salvation of all nations. And that's why the end of the book, show, this, the phrase appears again. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Jews may have thought of all nations about, or in terms of them, those on the outside, those on the outside of God's reach and grace and mercy and favor, but, but Matthew is telling us, no, 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 no. These are the nations that God longs to save. Yeah. And so it's interesting, when you come to this phrase, all nations, in Matthew 25, the last time the reader has heard Jesus mention the nations is 24, verse 14. That you're going to, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And I wonder if, if just kind of having that echo from chapter 24, verse 14 and importing that into this parable here, I wonder if it's supposed to help us recognize that somewhere along the line, this quote-unquote parable of the sheep and the goats is actually giving us the indicator or, or, or kind of giving us the answer. How is the gospel to be preached in all the world as a witness? It's this way. It's this way. Could it be that this parable sheds light on how the gospel should be preached in all the world? That Jesus is teaching us something about being ready, something about how, to, how the end-time bridesmaids, so to speak, will light the way to the wedding? how God's end-time faithful servants will use his resources to gain others to the kingdom. And so here, the parable is going to demonstrate, well, what is it that we do for all the nations? Let's keep reading. Verses 33 and 34. This is Matthew chapter 25 now. Matthew 25, verse 33, the Bible says, And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, I... I don't know, I've, I've shared this with Debbie. I don't know how many I've shared this with, but I've had this childhood dream that one day, you know, it'd be really cool to just spend a lot of time with sheep and just to get, you know, be on the hills of Scotland somewhere and pretend to be a shepherd. And anyways, I've had this idea in mind, and one day I actually got to have a taste of that back at my home church in Bakersfield, California. Um, we had this thing called a walk through Bethlehem, and, you know, we would actually set up a, a mini town of Bethlehem with different booths and things like this. And there would be a merchant selling salt and, a, you know, Roman soldiers kind of making it rough for the visitors and things. And so we would tour people through. And, and one of the stations there was finding the shepherds in the fields. And they actually had flocks there so that we had live sheep and things. We had wise men who, who were holding camels. And um, anyways, we had a, a newborn baby that was kept warm there in wintry California. It doesn't really get that cold. But <laughs> anyways, um, but one night after this walk through Bethlehem experience, I had the privilege, you know, I was acting my part at one of the stations. And then afterwards, as we were cleaning up, I got to go over to the shepherd's stall and uh, kind of help guide the sheep down to 
to where they were supposed to be kept for the night. And sure enough, man, sheep, they like to stick together. I don't know how many of you have, have spent a lot of time with sheep, but they have this flocking instinct. Have you noticed that? That if one goes, they kind of all assume that everybody else is supposed to go too. Um, I thought I was the shepherd. No, they were their own shepherd. They, they knew exactly where to go. Um, goats, though, are a little bit different. Have you noticed that? You know, where sheep are grazers, they kind of keep their head down. Uh, they're, they're eating from the ground because they, they like to kind of keep things down here. But the, there's a natural curiosity in goats. They, they like to explore. They eat not just what's on there, but what's here. Hey, hey, hey. Um, goats, they have this natural curiosity where they are relatively more independent than sheep. And so it's really interesting that in, in this parable, Jesus is making a distinction between uh, animals sheep and goats, um, or maybe it's, he's serving as a shepherd that's distinguishing those who are flocking towards him from those who are naturally independent of him. Are we following that? Yes or no? Yeah. And so what, what is it? The, the picture of the sheep and the goats here, we read earlier the affirmation of the sheep, but then there's a flip-flop, uh, a, a non-affirmation of the goats. Let me just read through the entire paragraphs, just in case we, we haven't heard this before. It says this in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you, or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, verse 40, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to who? To me. Then verse 41 to the end, totally tells the reverse story of those on the king's left, right? the goats. Verse 41, then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I tell you what, the fire that destroys sin was never intended for you and I. It was prepared for the devil. It was prepared for the enemy the one who originated sin. And then he says in verse 42, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you, serve you? Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to who? To me. To me. That's the, the sad part of the parable, right? And it ends with the punishment that was intended for the enemy is actually given to those who have been cultivating a spirit of the enemy and they did not even know it. <laughs> Verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Here's what I want to do for the rest of the time together is look at the picture of the blessed. We've looked at the picture of the king, but I want to look at two pictures of the blessed, okay? And this first picture of the blessed or the blessed that we see in, in verse 34, 35, 36 is that of a picture of simple service. Would you agree? Yeah? Simple service. In other words, the blessed have been a blessing to others. That's what sets them apart. What's different between the blessed and the, uh, the, the sheep and the goats is that the blessed have been a blessing to others and the cursed have been the exact opposite. The blessed have been living in, uh, you know, real time, in their present experience, they've been living kingdom principles, the very things that they were always meant to live. I love it. In verse 34, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is how we were always meant to live. And so what's that first picture? It's the picture of simple service. I mean, you look at the way that, that their experience was described, and there's a spectrum of conditions, right? A spectrum of needs or lack. You know, hungry, thirsty, stranger or foreigner, naked, sick, and those that are in prison, right? You see this spectrum of needs, this, uh, the, these lack, or these descriptions of lack, and for each condition, whether it's hunger, thirst, or whatever the condition, that uh, the way that the blessed interacted with those needs is that their ministry matched the need, right? For hunger, there was food given. For thirst, there was drink given. For a stranger who didn't have any place to fit in, they were taken in. Belonging was given, yeah? But then at the end of the list, there are a couple of exceptions. For the sick, it wasn't that healing was given, what did you notice? What did you, what did you see there? In verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you what? Visited me. And then for the ones in prison, it wasn't that freedom was given. But what else was given? You came to me. Right? I was in prison and you came to me. And as I was just kind of pondering this, I was realizing, wow, the need of the sick, the need of the prisoner, it's more than just the change of physical circumstances. The need of the sick and the need of the prisoner is personal contact and presence. Hmm. In other words, the blessed in their simple service, they're not just in fix-it mode. They're in be-with mode. You follow that today? Sometimes, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I grew up in a family of doctors. Um, and so when I see someone who is sick or I hear of someone who is sick, I think to myself, oh, if only I were a doctor, then I could help. If only I were a nurse, then I'd be able to offer some help. But check this out. Sometimes their need isn't just a change of circumstances. Sometimes their need is just personal contact. I love it. That word visit, it's reminiscent. You know, I've been kind of uh, ruminating on the Christmas story again. And it just in Luke chapter 1, when uh, Zechariah kind of comes to recognize what is happening, he, he says, the Lord has visited his people. 
That's the same word, right? The same word that Jesus says here, uh, you know, they, they've visited the sick. In other words, it's, it's the idea of concerning yourself with. That's what's going on. You don't have to be a physician to minister to the sick. You don't have to be a lawyer or a counselor to visit those in prison. <laughs> uh, some would call this not just the ministry of healing, but the ministry of presence. Have you heard that before? It's the ministry of presence. And I, I tell you what, it doesn't always mean having the right thing to say or anything to say at all, okay? Sometimes we, we want to go be with people, but you're uncertain, like, oh, I don't know what to say. I tell you, the story of Job and his friends shows me that sometimes it's just better not to say anything at all, right? The question is not whether we have a degree to meet a need. The question is, do I have a heart to meet the need? Yeah. Wherever we have the heart, we can meet that need. I, I want to share a story of a, a man named Billy. I think his last name, Billy, is it Shelby? Billy Shelby. He lived in Missouri. He was a sanitation worker. That means he was a trash man. Waste management. He worked in Missouri. And in 2019, he was doing his regular route. <clears throat> And he witnessed an 88-year-old woman trying to bring her garbage can out to the driveway. She fell. She hit her head. Opal was her name. And this guy wasn't just going to drive on past and get his job done. He stopped his truck, and he helped this woman until emergency services could come. He was present. He helped where he could. And later on, as, as the story un unfolded, um, Opal's uh, daughter was going through footage of, uh, you know, what do you call security cam, a security cam that, that her daughter had set up on her mom's front porch because, you know, it just wanted to make sure that Opal was doing well, that her mom was doing well, her mom was starting to suffer from dementia and things like this. And she started seeing that every week when Billy would come by, this is ever since the accident, every week Billy would, would walk up Opal's driveway and bring out her trash can for her. And see, every week there, there was this, I think there's a picture of this too. This picture, okay? Every week Billy would come up and give Opal a hug and walk the trash can back. I mean, walk the trash can out and walk the trash can back. He was later quoted as saying, let me see if I can get this right. Here I am, just a trash man, right? But I can still be the best person I can be. <laughs> it's a really simple story. And again, the question is not whether we have a degree to meet a need. The question is whether we have a heart to meet the need. Yeah. The point is that, hey, let's give what others need and let's give what we can. And sometimes that is time. Sometimes that is presence. Sometimes that is just Simple service, right? To, and, and I would say this, that to withhold simple service in opportunities where we can is actually to express an unreadiness for the kingdom that was prepared for us from the foundation of the world. So here we have the picture of the blessed. They, they, they simply serve, but there's a second picture here. And the second picture is complete surprise. Did you notice that part of it? 
right? Jesus' affirmation, the king's affirmation, hey, I was hungry, you gave me drink. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Uh, I'm sorry, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. But then in verse 37, there's this picture of complete surprise. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? You see, this, this is really awesome. I mean, in both groups, the blessed and the cursed, the sheep and the goats, both groups are surprised. Did you catch that? Both groups are surprised, but they're surprised for different reasons. And that surprise element, for me, it sheds light on what's going on in the heart. It sheds light on the motivations behind their actions. That the, the blessed, the sheep, you know, their loving actions, their kind, compassionate service, it is unconscious. Did you catch that? It's unconscious. In other words, it's not contrived. It's just who they are. That tells me that that love is internalized. It's not programmed like it is for the goats. Well, if I had known, I would have done differently. Right? That would have been a conscious, let me switch a flip, I mean, flip a switch, and now let me be loving. Mm. I tell you what, love that is programmed and contrived is really a love that is selfish at its core. Because it's not really about the other person, but about what I get out of it or how I appear to other people. So the surprise element here, it identifies how natural and unassuming the sheep's actions are. It's not for brownie points. It's not for merit or recognition. And I tell you what, when love is natural, and here's another word, when love is spontaneous, that's because it's from the overflow of a heart that has been converted. That's not, that's not how you and I are by nature. That is not the flesh. That is the product of knowing God and being changed by God. Yeah. When I was in academy, when I was a senior in high school, um, I came across a book, or I started going to a youth Bible study, and there was somebody there who would keep referring to this book called The Desire of Ages, and I started reading this book, The Desire of Ages, on the life of Jesus for the very first time. And um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever had a chance to, to read through this book, but I tell you, you need to, okay? It's a picture of Jesus that you will not forget. And I remember coming to a chapter um, near the end of the book. It's actually a chapter on this parable of the sheep and the goats. And I found this quotation. And it became such a, it just kind of hit me between the eyes. It helped me recognize my lovelessness, that all my good, you know, I was the good kid. I was the kid that, uh, you know, that, that could make friends wherever I was and just try to help people feel great about themselves and stuff. But, but I started to realize that, man, is my love spontaneous or is it just so that others would love me? And I found this quotation and I put it... <clears throat> Like I, I decked it out, I colored, penciled it and everything like that, and I pasted it in my locker so that every time I opened it, I would see this. And this is what that simple sentence says, or sentence says, when we love the world as he loved it, that's speaking of Jesus, when we love the world as he loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. We are fitted for heaven. Why? For we have heaven in our hearts. Enough said, right? 
<laughs> Man, when we love the world as he loved it, that's what Jesus is trying to do. When Jesus came to earth, he came to implant a principle in our hearts, a principle of love that, that is the very heartbeat of heaven. What is that? Other-centered, self-sacrificing love. Because of that, we are fitted for heaven. Why? For we have heaven in our hearts. That's being ready. Readiness, then, is, yes, simply serving and loving spontaneously. <laughs> spontaneous love, this overflow of the heart that's been changed, the heart that's fitted for heaven. I would say this, spontaneous love is practical, like it's active, it's doing something. It's also personal. In other words, it's, it's got a face on it. There's a name to it. It's not just a cause that is for someone to be benefited from. No, it's for a particular person, right? These people, they went to, and I guess that's the third component of their spontaneous love. It's proactive. The sheep went to meet the need. They didn't wait for the need to come to them. That's the kind of love that I don't have. Can we just be real with that? <laughs> that you and I do not have unless Jesus is abiding in the heart. That's the kind of love I long for. That's the kind of love I, I need a heart change for. And so here we're coming to the end of this series on readiness for the return of Jesus. And I tell you, it's not primarily a chronological concern. Although that may be a component of readiness, chronology isn't its essence. It is ultimately a relational concern. Do I know Jesus? And do I love like Jesus? Amen. And if the return of Jesus, I mean, think about this. If the return of Jesus means reunion of the heavenly family with the human family, then readiness for that return means that whatever caused the rift in the first place is going to be reversed and undone. So what was the rift? It was putting self at the center. Right? In the Garden of Eden, in the heart of Lucifer, it was putting self on the throne. And so then readiness means that has been removed and I can live in love. Giving myself for the sake of others. So what should we do about this? Right? Practical takeaways. Let's kind of wrap this up. I tell you what, this is not supposed to be, hear me, please clearly hear me. <laughs> this is not supposed to be a guilt trip to make us try harder to love people. That would be defeating the purpose altogether, right? <laughs> because it wouldn't be natural. It wouldn't be spontaneous. It wouldn't be the overflow of a heart that's been converted. Like we said before, the goats feel like they would have done differently had they known. Yeah, we want self-awareness. We want to know if we are not living this natural love, but we don't want self-righteousness. Amen? We're not going to say, oh, okay, so that's how I should love people. That's how I should be ready. Okay, I'm just going to try harder now. <laughs> no. What all this should do by holding up the mirror, if we realize that we don't live and love like the sheep in this parable, what we need is a change of heart. Amen. That the spring of our lives would be completely overhauled. We need a change of heart. We need conversion. And that is a miracle. That is a miracle only wrought by the blood of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. 
man, the, the video of, of Marcella, your, your testimony there, it, baptism itself is a confession. I cannot do this. I cannot make myself new. I need to die, be buried, and resurrected. Yeah, <laughs> we need a converted heart, a heart that sees people just as Jesus sees them. How does Jesus see them? Whatsoever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, my sisters. Jesus sees these people as his family. Jesus sees those in need, hungry, thirsty, sick, imprisoned. Jesus sees those in need as his family, as his very own. They are not just the sum of their poor decisions and unfortunate circumstances. I'm just verbalizing my own, my own mental script that I catch myself when I see a need and I start judging. Oh, maybe I'm the only one in this room. I'm the only one in this room that ever gets in that rut of selfishness. Man. But to see, Je or to see people in need as Jesus sees them, his family, his blood, that only comes from a heart that's been converted. There's a promise in Romans chapter 5, 5. I don't have it on the screen. Maybe you can write this one down. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What we need is a deluge of the love of God, right? To be poured abroad in our hearts. Through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. So it's a simple question today. How many of you want to join me in praying for a converted heart? Yeah. Amen. Amen.